Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, Today I thought I'd do a quick check-in with um, how things went for our games of the week. Uh, I thought I would maybe talk a bit about complexity in uh, role-playing games as well too and see whatever else might come to mind at this, uh, yeah, as this week kind of gets off to a, a good start for this short week. So that's what we're in for. Let's get to the episode. Okay, so let's start off maybe with, once again, a backwards kind of ordering to this. Let's start with the uh, state of play. So this past week, I ran two sessions of our, oh, let's see here. We had two sessions of our Advanced Dungeons & Dragons second edition uh, campaign, uh, Night Below, and uh, those were, um, let's see here, what happened in those? One of them was a return and assault on the Goblin Stronghold at um, Heathertop Warren. So that's what we did on Wednesday. Wednesday was a uh, uh, heavily involved assault of the player characters going in to try and take out this uh, this Goblin Warren. And uh, it was pretty good. Um, I think that's what happened on Wednesday. Friday was the players returning... Oh yeah, it was. So Friday was the players... uh, What they decided to do was to abandon the attack uh, because of um, things just weren't going uh, their way. They they made their way back to their home base. uh, Or not to the home base, but to the the encampment that they had set up that uh, uh, was where they... From which they were... Kind of setting all future raids on the on the Warren. It was a place that they'd retreated to twice on previous occasions, and then this time, what they decided to do is go back and redo some training. Uh, you know, get get their characters back up, and then um, yeah, and then couple, then also, I guess they were pushing up against the deadline for how long it it would it be? It'd be two weeks since they had set out from. Um, Milbourne from the the town that's kind of their home base uh, so yeah I mean a couple things that um, oh again this then what happened there was they they then traveled over land um, they through they decided rather there were two options they had really to kind of get back one of them well three one of them was to sort of retreat fall this, this river back out to the edge of the uh, hills head north along the edge of the hills between the hills and this big spreading swamp called the or bog called the the new mire head north and then from there decide where they want to go or that would have put them about a day behind though uh, because they uh, and they wouldn't have reported back in a two hour window that uh, with which they were trying to you know to scout the hills Uh, they also so what they decided to do is go go straight across the these hills there was endless hills they went straight across them and the interesting thing there was that they managed to get themselves completely lost. So they added one extra day of travel to their time, and I think they had another encounter. The only random encounter I remember... Oh, there's two. There's one with uh, some spiders on the way back, uh, which was actually an interesting uh, exercise in the... What do you call it? In the uh, kind of emergent storytelling that comes from this kind of play. I rolled a random encounter the day on one day, but then I rolled... Uh, we rolled surprise for the party, and the monsters were not, but the monsters were, I rolled their random reaction as being indifferent. So what I decided was that these 
spiders uh, rather than, you know, just try to ambush the players. They had kind of, you know, they just happened upon them. They weren't necessarily hungry or, you know, out for prey or whatnot. So they, the spiders ended up not attacking. Uh, they, you know, I, what I had for for the next day, while the players were up and kind of recovering and, and one of the players was, uh, or characters was searching the, the area around their camp, they found these tracks that were clearly giant spider tracks. And that kind of raised a little bit of tension because I, I think that was the first time I had actually used the random encounters that way. I did that in Barrel Maze a couple of times. And uh, yeah, it was good. I mean, it was... Um, and I think, what you know what, going forward, what I'm going to do is I think I'll add in that there will be evidence of something. I, so let me back up here. For what I did in Barrow Maze is if I, if I rolled a random encounter, then the players would have an encounter. If I rolled a near miss on the random encounter, what I do is I would tell them what thing they saw or they detected. You know, they might be able to see a, a camp if it's like a humanoid or, you know, ambushers or bandits or whatnot, or they might see tracks from some monster. And it gave the... It was another little way to give the the game a feeling of like a lived in you know responding world. So, I um, yeah I'm gonna do that in this campaign too. When I roll off by one, what I'll do is I will I will roll and let them know kind of what's lurking in the area. And the reason that's worthwhile is because what happened in that session was so they saw the tracks of the spiders and then you know the next day they went setting off and sure enough the first random encounter I rolled was spiders. So what I said was that you know because they had gone off in search of these things trying to you know, wipe them out or make sure they weren't going to attack them in the, in the night, they basically got the attention of the spiders and the spiders came after them. Uh, so it was, a, I mean, a very small thing, but it's one of those nice little ways, I think, that this kind of, it's fun to run this kind of random, you know, uh, sandboxy kind of random encounter-driven uh, campaign or, or a mix of random encounter with set-piece encounters because it, me as a DM, it's, it's, it's kind of like, oh, neat, I, I didn't expect that to, to be the, the problem. Another thing that they found... Um, was they've uncovered a little bit more information about what's kind of going on in the setting. And they discovered that there were, uh, they had had a couple of random encounters with some wild dogs in the uh, in the hills. And what they found is that people, the farmers living in the region, the last couple of years, they just have not been able to keep dogs. Dogs keep running off into the hills for some reason. The players don't know why that's the case. Uh, the characters don't know why that's the case. But it's another little interesting, I think, uh, tidbit that hopefully, I mean, if the, if the players pursue it, neat maybe there'll they'll be something that uh, comes from it if they don't it's fine you know it's it's uh it's just another thing that that makes the the place feel I, I hope feel more lived in and real you know um and wider than just the scope of the what the players have in front of them not everything has to fit with the story that they're you know they're engaged in um they also encountered a we had a neat kind of result that came up on the mortal wounds table that we are using for, for this campaign where the um, one of the players uh, Jason Hobbs of uh, the uh, Hobbs and Friends podcast and of the um, oh gosh what's his other hot pod I keep forgetting the name of his other podcast because I'm a dumbass um, oh, his anchor podcast is called uh, gosh I'm going to remember as soon as I stop recording but in any event uh, Hobbs uh, he plays a a wild elf um, elementalist, elf, uh, earth elementalist in our campaign, and uh, he had a neat vision where he saw this. We had a result where the result said he had a vision of some spirit or whatnot, and I just sort of improvised on the fly what that would be, uh, but it was an improvisation based on the foundation of what's kind of going on in the campaign and the particulars of the character's backstory. 
which was a lot of fun, you know, and that's the thing that I, again, like I really like about this style of campaign is being able to string those threads of, uh, of, of uh, the narration or the fiction together, on, you know, as we go along. And it's not stuff I've planned out. It's just a neat way of like, oh, cool, this now, this is a neat way of tying these two things together. Let's do that. Or a way of at least playing on one element of the character's backstory. So, yeah, I mean, a really, really, really fun couple of sessions there. The players now find themselves uh, at, uh, let's see, back in uh, in town, and we're about to kick off about a week or so of downtime with the players. First time we've done downtime, but one thing that I will say about the the, the sandbox campaign too that I'm definitely going to do in every other campaign going forward is the calendar. The calendar is such a good source of reinforcing the feeling of the passage of time, you know, like, I mean, when the players could ask me how long they'd been in the woods or, or been on searching, knowing that there was a deadline uh, coming or looming for when they were supposed to report back to this, their, their benefactor. Um, it was great. Really, really cool. Uh, so yeah, I, um, I really, really, really want to make sure I keep track of that as uh, going forward uh, as well. Uh, for not only for this campaign, but for any other, you know, sandbox game that I decide to run, whatever the calendar is, it's going to be neat to see what happens when the ca- when the weather changes too. Um, but in any event, so that's that was Wednesday and Friday's sessions, and then on Saturday's session we return to our astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea game. This is session twenty-seven of that campaign, and this was a massive battle between uh, two different uh, our, our, our heroes' army. And another army as well, that uh, the, the army of the Second Sons, the the, inf, the um, nefarious Second Sons, a rival group of um, you know uh, landless nobles who are trying to uh, seize the very castle that our heroes have uh, cleared out and seized for themselves. And it was crazy. It was three hours, basically two well two and a half three hour battle. Um, we ended up having about fifty or so. Uh, you know, um, tokens on the board, for, and it it was a, thrilling. It was a great, um, great encounter. Really fun thing. Uh, we had some twists. We had some unexpected developments, and um, the, at the end, the players were successful. They were able to drive off their party, and it, that was good. Like I mean, I'm um, that game is fantastic for running those kind of like a lot of old school games, but uh, Ash has a particular. I don't know. I mean, a particular skill with organizing those kinds of big, massive battles in a fun and like gameable kind of way. You know, with the regimented turn structure that they have in that game as written, uh, it uh, it really lends itself towards that kind of you know controlling massive armies type thing. And I I'd, uh, decide I gave the players control of the different units in it as well too. So the players were not only controlling their characters, they were also controlling whole units of players and or of uh, NPCs in it, so yeah, that game was great, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the next um, session, and uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where, once the, this, uh, the siege was pretty fun um, uh, and uh, the, I need to figure out what the army's going to do in response I, that, that, like our Night Below game it's, it is a persisting world with you know, kind of, I try to make sure that the world responds in, in predictable uh, and um, understandable ways but 
in this case, they the players managed to wipe out a good chunk of this guy's the, this group's army. And one thing that did happen in that session that I was really happy with was there was an NPC in there that I had a great deal of fun creating, and I had sort of cooked up this elaborate backstory for him, and and it was sort of planning on him being a recurring villain, uh, complete with a special voice and whatever else too. And the players killed him in like one round. Um, so, you know, there's a, a saying in, uh, that I, I can't remember what, what, uh, what gr- game gave this advice, but the advice was kill your darlings. You know, if you, if you become so precious about your NPCs and your plot and whatever else you had going that it's interfering with the players, uh, so, you know, earning or at least enjoying their earned successes. Like in this case, they earned that kill. They were totally, they were smart. Uh, they were really hard-pressed in the first uh, little bit of that battle and all the characters. I, I don't, I'm not sure there's anybody who got away unscathed in that fight. Um, but they oh, they earned that. And uh, it, from the reaction the players gave to taking him down and, and to the other kind of minor NPCs or minor bosses, I guess, I created for it, it, those were very gratifying, um, you know, kills for the players. So, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson that I uh, I successfully implemented in play. I didn't give any bullshit reason for why this guy would survive or any nonsense like that. Um, he had, he did what he needed to do, which is to be a memorable little mini boss for this particular fight, and that was it. You know, he nearly killed uh, one of the major NPC, one of the major PCs. Uh, we've had a new person join the campaign. This character almost died under the hammer of this guy, this NPC, uh, for, you know, within the first two rounds of, of combat. So, yeah, so it was really good. Uh, that was a fun session. And then on Sunday, Sunday's our, was our Zweihander uh, campaign. And I'm going to talk about that in a separate section here because, um, partly because I'm pulling up at the pet store, but also because that, that one's going to be a little more involved. But eh, I think the luster in that game's come off a bit. So let me maybe put a pin in this session here, or this uh, section here. And, uh, and I'll talk more about Zweihander in the next section. Okay, so let's talk uh, Zweihander. So Zweihander is... Um, we had our final session of this on Sunday. Uh, we played three round sessions of it. And what we decided... Uh, we actually spent about an, uh, almost an hour beforehand talking about the, the game, our impressions and whatnot. And uh, we decided to collectively to, you know, after that particular session to kind of say goodbye to Zweihander for the for the time being. Um, I want to start with the positives with uh, our experience with Zweihander. For one, it's a, uh, I think it's a really great looking book. I think that um, the supplements it has for it, especially the accessories, the accessories like the monster cards, the spell cards, stuff like that, phenomenal really really good stuff like uh the game master screen the game master play mats the things uh it, it really you know you uh i think those are easily on par with um with anything put out by the major publishers uh, as well too i think it's a really solid bunch of supplements i think the game itself has at its core uh, some really good ideas um i also think there's a lot of other muddled ideas that aren't clear and I think that there are elements of the, you know, there's elements of the of the game that have not, I don't know why they've they've not been uh, addressed up until now. Like, so 
one of the things I think I mentioned in the last podcast is that there, so that the game itself, I guess like first, well, we're still thinking broad, you know, or a high level here. One of the things that I, I found confusing about it is that the game seems at times to be cross purposes where it is trying to be very crunchy and, and tactical, but also trying to be very, you know, loosey goosey and uh, easy to improvise. And like, that's, I don't know. Uh, it, it, you can't, kind of have to be one or the other. Like there's, there's advice at the beginning of it saying, Oh, all you really need to to run this game is the, the first, you know, 10 pages of this. This is the core of the rules. Well, that's absolutely not true because the uh, action economy in the game is hidden way in the combat section. So, which is like 300 pages into the book or 200 pages into the book. So, it is not the case that the everything you need to run that game is in the first little bit. Everything you need to understand the fundamentals of task resolution is the first little bit. But, and there are some really good ideas for how you manage task resolution in the game. For instance, um, each of your skill, each of your um, abilities, you gain this thing, these things called bonuses, which are like, it's not bonuses to the actual stat, it's bonuses to the, or it's increases to the bonuses, which are effectively the tens digits of your different attributes. And those things come into play when you're doing contested roles, and they're added to certain other roles too, like your combat bonus uh, from your combat stat is... Uh, is added to the damage of your uh, of your attacks, unless you're using a weapon that adds something different, because there's there's a lot of traits and weapon modifiers. So that's pretty cool. And the um, I, the thing is, is that it's, it's kind of there's there's ways where the game kind of, it it seems to only apply that stuff in the non-combat component, and the combat system doesn't take advantage of that really interesting way of of kind of like distinguishing someone's skill level. Uh, from someone else's. The game uses uh, something very similar to anyone who's played um, uh, percentile-based you know, uh, RPG before where you're rolling to attack and the person rolls to defend. It's a defense roll. But the defense rolls at the same number that you use to attack, which means that it feels really swingy. Uh, I guess so the other thing is, is that while a lot of other non-combat skills, you can easily get a plus 10 bonus or something like that to help offset to make you feel less like the incompetent boobs that you kind of are when you start um and the more competent characters as well too um the you know i'm trying to think of if there's a lot of sameness that that comes from this where you know characters at a certain level all are sort of fixed and or capped at an amount for their stats and an amount for their uh for their skills and because they're they never really raise their stats. It's only the bonuses that that apply, and the bonuses only apply indirectly to non-combat skills. It means that they're, you know, the only way to really substantially increase your chances of success at any given skill, combat or otherwise, is going to be by gaining tiers, which may mean proceeding into different careers. So it means that you're, to really, like, you know, if you're entering a base level, uh, tier or base level profession or career uh, and it's basic you're you know you can go outside and keep uh, outside of whatever the set advantages are that you you select the, the advantages are just or advances these are the ways the things that you 
that make up your career, that distinguish your career from other careers, and you have to get all of them in order to move on to your next career. And if you do decide to take something outside of that, which you're completely free to do, costs you double. So it's suboptimal to try and raise your character beyond what the career does if you're just trying to proceed through to the next uh, tier. There doesn't appear to be restrictions uh, for how many times, so like how many times you take skill advances, so you could, I guess, keep getting a skill advance and every one of those gives plus 10% to your chances with that given skill, but it's weird that your, say, gambler, you know, my, my buddy Arlen Walker uh, has talked about this quite a bit in, on our Discord server because he'd been giving it some uh, some careful mechanical thought, and it's weird that, you know, it's the profession itself doesn't give you a lot of options for increasing your gambling skill. You know, you would think that that's the thing that you could take three times or whatever, um, but that's not the case in this. So it's, um, I know I, it sounds like I'm being a little scattershot in my assessment of it. It's because there's, it's not that it's a bad game. Like it's not that it's a non-playable game. It's just that there's so many little things that are a little weird about it that feel unfinished or, strange arbitrary things that don't support the fiction um, another example of like a, a more of the not thought through is there's not a, an action in a, it's an action econ, action you know based uh, economy of three um, or action based action economy uh, you have three action points each round and then you can spend those to take actions to, uh, you only make one of those be an attack and you uh, if you want to do any reactions like defenses you need to save those but the what the result is is that um, there's really if you're spending saving one for a defense and you're willing to spend two for an attack, there's for one thing there's two different actions that you can take. There's an aim which is plus ten percent to, to your next roll, and then there's an attack, but someone can defend against that against their full rate, or you can do what's called a called shot and make a, a roll, and you basically uh, you take a penalty to the attack roll, which is dictated by the DM, and the suggested numbers, if you're attacking a call shot against the body, there's no modifier, but the player can't make a defense. So, you know, there's, I'm not sure there's a, there's a real, like, calculus of which one's better when you're deciding between a 10% bonus against which someone can defend, or just something that is 10% less than that, that will be an automatic hit because the call shot's two action points versus one. So that's a little weird. And it's also a little weird that there's no definition of, of um, interacting with objects. You know, like it just, you know, if I was going to try and create a list of, you know, if I want to adopt an action economy thing like that, which seems similar to Mithras in a way, and it seems, to be honest, very similar to uh, Pathfinder 2 um, and the Pathfinder Unchained set of rules, there's the optional action economy there. Um, why wouldn't you sit down with a comparable game and figure out what those things are? And it's not good enough to say that, you know, well, you know, we, we trust that the DM is going to make up that stuff. Like, you don't publish a 600-page rule book and then try and say, well, I'm, we're leaving stuff to the DM. Why? Why, why did you do that? Um, and it's such a basic action, too. It was very frustrating um, and it's not that it's hard to figure out what those things would be. And having spoken to some friends who run Zweihander more often than I do, they gave some, they said, oh, well, this is how so-and-so, um, you know, how we handle it and how the, the author house rules it. It's like, well, why the fuck is it a house rule? 
Why is that not part of the thing? And this is the example I mean about it running kind of cross purposes against itself. Um, the game also is it because it takes a step into that tactical space and not just um, and, and isn't just satisfied to be a strict simulationist kind of thing where there are like game abilities and powers effectively that certain classes have that others don't it really lends itself to power gaming as well too especially if you're wanting to run kind of a combat monkey type character uh, so that seems weird as well and I mean there's going to be an element of power gaming in any game but in this particular game each career has some special unique ability that no other career has and because the game is so career driven you know there's a ridiculous amount which is cool I mean like I like that I, I like that about it as well but if you're introducing a, a neat power for every single one of those it's impossible to try and figure out what the potential consequences are and what the broken combos are and I don't need there to be game balance in all of my games but if you are introducing a relatively crunch heavy tactical game like that's not just simulation is that is more gamist like what this game is doing you, you got to be spending a little more th- spare a little more greater thought to towards that so whew. um so you know at the end of the day what we ended up we we had a, a pretty fun fight although um it was interesting and I, and at the end of it i think what the the conclusion i reached is, is i just enjoy playing with these players quite a bit it's not so much the game that was really you know because when, when we talked about it beforehand we started playing we had a good session and then after the game we were like um i don't know um i there's so much great there's so much stuff that's in that rule book and there's so many i think great ideas um if i sat down and hammered out uh my own house rules for it i could easily see myself uh really enjoying uh that game um once I sort of banged it around and, and made it into uh, to smooth out the things that I'm perceiving as, as rough edges uh, and it's a very popular game so I, it's, it's not that you know um, it's not that the game is unplayable it's just uh, I think it, you know some of the criticism I think I have of it is very is sort of similar to the criticism I have of Fantasy Flight Star Wars where it's it's trying to have its cake and eat it too by being a little bit of a loosey-goosey old-school game but also having this modern game tactical crunch but it's not it doesn't feel like it's it's thinking through it's got a really clever game mechanic uh with the contested roles like the contested role thing i don't know why that's not carried over into combat it just it's crazy uh especially when you've got a continual contested role against the target um uh against uh, you know with with, uh, with parrying attacks and parries in it so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I um, it's a game I want to I want to enjoy a lot more than I think what I am, and I think that I think that with I don't know, like I don't ever run a game strictly as written. You know, like I don't run AD and D second out of the book. I don't run Ash out of the book. I, I make changes to those games to make them, you know, so when I say I love these games, I love running these games, I'm talking about the house-ruled versions that I have, which is expected of any role-playing game. You know, I think any, uh, unless you're playing something that, like Pathfinder, where they're, you know, in a um, rotating table kind of session, 
for people you don't know, then there isn't the obligation to on the, on the part of the DM to run it as written. So I, this is why maybe I'm, I'm struggling with saying that it's, you know, offering these criticisms because I think all these criticisms are things that I could easily fix, or at least I, I'm saying fix, assuming there's a problem with the game. The problems that I foresee with the game or I perceive with it um, are things I could fix. And I think what I'd like to do is a couple months from now, I'd like to go back to the game having uh, crunched out some or, you know, churned out some new, uh, some new house rules for it ways that I think would address the problems. And I'd, I'd do the exact same thing that I did with my uh, other games that I've run, which is to say that I would, you know, I'd steal ideas from other games. And, and Svihander has done that. It's, it's clearly standing on the shoulders of Giants in terms of its, uh, some of its uh, design decisions as well. But I think that there's, there's definitely, um, there is a game in there. I guess here's the other thing, is that the game is so heavily slated to being a Warhammer clone, you know, where uh, there's Airsats Sigmarite priests, and there's Airsats Slanesh, you know, cultists, and there's monsters are all effectively versions of Warhammer fantasy characters, so it's, the game currently as written is not even really its own thing, it's really just like another version of, of Warhammer fantasy, and if you choose to take everything that's in the game and run it you're going to get a Warhammer experience. If you choose to carve things out or add stuff in, you will get a more unique experience, like some of the other settings that it suggests in there. But, I mean, I hate leaving parts of the game on the table. That's, you know, especially for a game that is so full of interesting careers with different powers and shit like that. Like, But, that said, Mind Gauche, the first supplement for it, has some terrific rules for creating adversaries and suggestions for how to balance those encounters and, and so forth. So, it's um, the game itself. I think has uh, has the tools that you need to make the game your own. And in the supplement as well too, they did add some other interesting ideas for the careers, uh, for for careers that are clearly not found in Warhammer. Like for instance, there's a version of the Witcher that's in there called the Hexer, which I think is a clever little you know nod to uh, what the original Polish translation means, which can be translated as Hexer rather than Witcher. So that's pretty cool. Um, so what I think, you know, my assessment is right now is rules is written. I don't, uh, you know, I wouldn't run into Zweihander again. I mean, I, I don't think that, um, I, I think it, it feels a little half-baked um, in some areas. I think it is overly uh, adorned with subsystems and, and mini games that is just not necessary for, for running the game. But I think that, oh, and the nomenclature, boy, oh boy. So the nomenclature in particular for the way wounds and injuries work, I I talked about that in the last podcast. Man, like someone pointed out that they're, uh, you know, calling it wounds and calling it injuries is just, man, they should should have taken a different way of of, um, describing them. Uh, The the death spiral thing in... um, in uh, in this game functions such that it's a bit of a crapshoot when you get injured physically, like by a weapon or something like that, or an attack or a monster claw or whatever, you're not necessarily going to feel that mechanically. You might if you suffer a wound, an injury, but you're, if you don't suffer that injury, up until the point where you drop into unconsciousness, dying, you're not going to have any mechanical penalty. So it, it, was, it presented a weird... Um, this weird thing where I 
as a DM was having struggling with how to describe what was happening. You know, because I'm so used to just filling in narration when all you're doing is counting down hit points. We fill in narration to add stuff for the fiction and then build on that stuff as you know, as the part as the adventure goes on. Um, in this case, it's it was weird. It's not insurmountable. It's just that it was counterintuitive to me as a DM the way I run stuff. So, and again, it's it's not a criticism of the game. It's just that the way that I run things, it did not work for me. So, yeah, and I, I guess like the in terms of the the way that uh, the you know how they're they're capturing the quote grim and perilous end quote kind of vibe, it is. The, the way that I see that in the game is written is either the fact that it's effectively a Warhammer, it's a version of a Warhammer role-playing game, which is the you know classic Grim and Perilous world, um, or it is that it is capricious. And by that I mean, you know, you may suffer a really brutal injury from any, uh, any damage you take from, from any target. You know, that might happen. Um, it's not guaranteed to. There's no predictability to it, but it might happen. You also might be right as rain up until the point where you drop, you hit, you suffer enough levels of injury that drops you below, or what levels of wounds, I should say, below the uh, the consciousness uh, threshold. So, so that's um, maybe it. It's also the, I mean, because the combat feels so swingy, it does technically feel like, oh my gosh, you know, you might. Um, you might uh, suffer injuries. Any anytime you go into combat, it's gonna be really dangerous. But I feel that because they really can't control a lot of the outcomes in it, at least not in a meaningful way, it feels very like a ten percent bonus one way or the other doesn't feel like much at the table. And that's what you get from aiming. That's what you get from some of your weapons that are you know providing penalties to dodges or parries or whatever. Um, I think if if I were to take my, my, my first pass at house rules would definitely be reworking the way that those combat skills work. I think I would rethink the way that, uh, you know, the what I might do is allow you to do more wild swings, more attacks per round at a penalty, a substantial penalty. I might allow you to make more than just like an aim strike. I think there would, there would be more risk-reward decisions that would have more consequence in it. I think I would also allow the bonuses to play more of a factor in the um, uh, in the outcome of those two things, um, and I think I think I think I think I would um, yeah I would just give more uh, I don't know and see like, like if I'm making all these changes why do I not just run Warhammer Fourth you know and then make changes from there to to get closer to what I want so I don't know I mean. I think that it is a very solid game. I think in comparison, that's not true. I think it's a, I think it is a, it is a game that shows a great deal of effort and thought put into it. I think that it needs a good editing. I think that it needs um, some substantial house rules, uh, either on the fly or, um, or there's edits that you need to make to, you know, beforehand to make sure that everyone's on the same page with respect to what the rules are. But it's it is a respectable effort at creating a unique Warhammer themed game. So, you know, I mean, I don't want it to seem like I'm damning it with faint praise. It's just that I, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the game um, it feels a lot less polished and a lot less uh, of a complete game uh, than. 
than what its impression gives. It is a very slick looking game. It has some terrific accessories. And, and, uh, and again, I think that with house ruling, you can have a pretty solid game out of this. Um, and you know what? It's not, again, it's not that it's unplayable. It's just that it's weird and clunky and it's got a lot of things, a lot of things going on in it that I don't quite understand why the design decisions were made uh, to be that way when it feels like they're, they could have been done a different way. And the holes in, in the rules too, like the, the fact that the body, uh, the uh, call shot is so much better than like seemingly any other attack you would make. It's weird. And it seems like, I don't know how that hasn't come up in, in play because if it's an intentional decision, then it's a weird one uh, that you would have one attack that is clearly better than anything else, uh, as opposed to having. Um, we know the other thing that's weird too is that because you're not allowing anything to make more than one attack per round, and maybe the monsters have more than one attack, but I don't think so. But what you're doing is you're effectively making it a knowable encounter. You know, you don't know. It would be much cooler if there are certain monsters that could attack way more often in, in the round or had more action points. You know, um, I'll have to double check to make sure I'm not wrong about that. That that's that there maybe there are monsters that have that, like boss monsters. But I don't know. I think you know what there is is it, there's definitely some good ideas there uh, that you could steal. It's just that I I wouldn't want to run it. And I think that even like to recommend um, if what you're looking for is a Warhammer game, I think that I would go with Warhammer Fourth before I'd go with this. Uh, to run in the Warhammer setting, if for no other reason that everything is already specifically with those names on it and is, is for that setting. And the new, fourth edition of Warhammer is pretty fucking cool. Um, and then if that's not your bag, if what you're looking for is just a dark fantasy game, I think there's probably other games that do a better job of running a dark fantasy type thing than what this does. So, and those would include, I guess, like uh, the Witcher uh, role-playing game if you want to play in that setting. Uh, Simba Room uh, does that. Um, the one from uh, Modiphius. Um, Forbidden Lands probably does a better job of it. Um, and even some of the old school games too, depending on what specific vibe you want from your old school game. One thing I will say is that, you know, the non-combat component of the thing, it is the character creation is extremely evocative. The, the amount of careers is a lot of fun, so it gives you a real good idea of what your character is actually doing. Um, there's a lot to like about that game. It's just some of the mechanics of it are very weird <laughs> so anyway so that is where we are with Spyhander we're setting that aside uh, now that that was the extent of our experience with that for, for I, I will go back to it at some point I, I purchased a great deal of stuff for the game and I think that there is like I said I mean I'll just make some house rules that I would um, am comfortable with and try it again and see if I if I enjoy the game with more house rules that's that's what I do with the other games that I run so it's not fair to assess the um you know, Zweihander by, uh, by a different criteria. Um, that's where I'll end this section, you know, um, and then I'll, uh, I'll go on and talk about, uh, future plans and then I'll talk about, I guess maybe the outro. So that's it for Zweihander. Okay. And that's where things stand with respect to the games we did run this past week. Um, and then my thoughts on, uh, Zweihander. In terms of coming up, I have, let's see here, we've got three charity sessions that have now been uh, secured uh, thanks to donations to the Heroes Save Villages uh, campaign. We've got, first up is going to be actually a very interesting one where along the lines of my um, October Faction uh, campaign or or, uh, the session, uh, 
the player has requested has a a theme or kind of like an, a setting and theme for the session, but has left it to me to make whatever game or use whatever game that I feel is appropriate for it, which is pretty fucking cool. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into that, and I am going to really try and, you know, meet the uh, standards that I set for our uh, October Faction game, because I think that one was really successful, and then uh, try and exceed that, uh, or at least meet it uh, for, for this next one, so that's that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, the next one is going to be for... Uh, what is it? Oh, it's uh, Dark Sun uh, for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so that's going to be pretty cool. Returning one of the players who played in our uh, in the New Year's Epic, which it, it didn't be to be honest, wasn't really much of an epic. We only played for uh, about maybe four hours or so, but it was a still a pretty. You know, it was. I'm, I'm really grateful that the uh, the donor uh, selected that again. That's going to be a lot of fun to write for. Um, and then we, the most recent one was a, um, return to, uh, either Pathfinder, uh, first edition or Pathfinder second edition in the Innistrad setting. Uh, not the campaign that I'm running on Saturdays. This is one to return to some characters that were created that we were playing, uh, for one of last year's actual gaming, uh, or not gaming marathons, but one of the charity sessions. It was, uh, uh, last year, the it's a he was a player in that one, not the donor who selected it, but he was a player in it, and he, I guess enjoyed it so much that he was yeah, anxious to get back to those characters. So I am fucking on board for that. Um, what else? Uh, the so that's exciting. And then for our Sunday session that where we've been playing Zweihander, the next thing that we've got up for next quarter is uh, Traveler. But I thought what I'd do is spend a couple of sessions um, trying something different. So I have a uh, one of the campaigns that I have mentioned before uh, that I really enjoyed was the uh, Dracula Dossier. It's an epic mega campaign, uh, sandbox kind of improvised campaign that was published by Pelgrain Press. Uh, and it's a... Boy, is it a cool setting. Uh, it's basically... It's a set of the the director's handbook is a set of I don't know it's a framework in which you can run an improvised uh, campaign that is um, that it in, is eminently replayable and yeah it's just it's very very cool it's a it's for the Knights Black Agents role playing game which is kind of a super spies meet vampires kind of thing. Um, and more in, in the like high action modern Bond or you know Jason Bourne type uh, heroes, and um, I, I've run Nice Black Agents before, but it it is a uses a system called Gumshoe, which is a like a resource management kind of thing. There's dice rolling as well, but part of it is using these resources that you have to modify the dice roll, similar to the cipher system. And I don't, I haven't found it to be incredibly immersive yet because the game interferes so much in it. Um, but what I'm going to try doing is I, I've got the characters together for this now, but I'm going to try running the Cult Divinity Lost role-playing game, use the, the rules from that to model these characters. And then um, uh, I'm using a pre-generated uh, adventure from this uh, supplement for the Dracula Dossier. Dracula Dossier was a line of products that they put out and uh, one of them was this thing called EDOM Files, and it's a bunch of adventures that take place kind of before the um, the events of the of the director's handbook. 
And uh, in this particular case, this first adventure is actually before uh, the novel, Dracula. So it's, um, it's going to be pretty cool. Like, the adventure seems pretty interesting. Um, I, I like the setting. It's unusual. It's in uh, the Balkans, which is, I think, a setting that we often don't go to in, uh, in Western role-playing games. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's a time that we don't go to very... I think a, a lot of um, campaigns or a lot of uh, Victorian-era stuff takes place, obviously, during the Victorian era, like right in, in the late you know, uh, 19th century. This takes place in uh, 1877, so it's a little earlier than, I think, what a lot of other, you know, Victor- kind of like European, um, that Edwardian, Victorian-era stuff takes place in. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and the cult system, it seems to owe an awful lot. It is a, a story game kind of thing where it's it's closer to like Powered by the Apocalypse or Fate games um, but it feels a lot closer to the City of Mist game which I, I really really enjoyed uh, running but it feels more like even more like a traditional game than what City of Mist is in the sense that there aren't like traits that are you're sort of like combining stuff into a sentence trying to justify uh, mechanical bonuses to things um, but I'm, I'm, and I don't mean that to, to be critical of City of Mist. I had a lot of fun at City of Mist, and we're definitely getting that back to the table this year. But um, I just mean, I, th- I think that this for this will suit, it looks like it's going to suit the horror thing quite well. The reason I'm not using Cult to just run Cult, I should say as well, is that the default setting in Cult is a little more... Partly it's a little more extreme than what I would want uh, in a horror game. And it's also elements or kinds of horror that I'm just not really... It's not really my bag, you know. It's a lot of splatter horror and a lot of gore and a lot of, you know, um, torture porn kind of stuff. Uh, And I I don't mean that to sound uh, pejorative. uh, If that's the kind of horror that you enjoy, all the more power to you. It's just not for me. It's just not what I really enjoy. And it's for the reason being is I, you know, I'm a child of the eight, of the nineties and I feel like that's been so played out, you know, that it's just, um, I'm, I, if I want to shock my players and give them that, that sense of tension in game, I don't need the kind of weird torture body horror stuff that, um, that seemed to be so prevalent in late 80s, early 90s horror stuff. Uh, it's made a definitely a resurgence in, in horror cinema nowadays too, but it's just not really, you know, um, I, it feels, you know, kind of silly in uh, in retrospect. Uh, in the same way that, like, I, I went back and watched the original Hellraiser recently, and it feels very silly. Like, it doesn't feel terrifying. It feels, and I think it's because I'm seeing it you know, with the benefit of 30 years of exposure to that kind of stuff, but it's just, it's just not my thing. So, um, so that's the reason I'm not using that, but I think the, the game itself, the, the underlying mechanic, uh, I'm abandoning certain things like, um, the way they work dark secrets and I'm abandoning disadvantages because that's, that just doesn't really work for the super spy kind of thing. But I'm in corp- I'm using basically those mechanics to add other things like drives and contacts and stuff like that. Or, um, they, what do they call them? Uh, Sanctuaries, I think they call them. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's that's progressing quite well. I'm looking forward to getting that to the table with the um, the Sunday group quite soon, and then after that, we're doing some Traveler. And after our time with uh, October Faction, I'm really looking forward to that. And um, yeah, this coming week we've got uh, some exciting about more AD and D, which is going to be a lot of fun. And then we've got our first session of Pathfinder Innistrad using Pathfinder Second Edition. That's going to be pretty cool. And then we've got our next session of uh, D20 Modern, not D20 Modern, of uh, Modern Age, 
And I, I'm going to have, um, I'm going to save my debrief on that one until we're actually done the campaign. But that one's been a little, um, I'm not enjoying that game as much as I thought I might. Um, in, in When I think of it in comparison to others, and I wonder whether that is partially related to it being a level-based game, but I don't know. I, um, I'm going to save my thoughts on level-based games and sci-fi and fantasy for a little later on. Oh, one other thing that I have taken a pretty deep dive back into, or two things. One is uh, Stars Without Number, specifically revised Stars Without Number from Kevin Crawford. I've got a one-shot brewing for that that I'm pretty excited about. I got one, I've shared one of the uh, pre-gens for it so far, but um, yeah, that's going to be pretty cool. That game, uh, that's gonna be one of those games that I feel like if I get it to the table, I'm going to never want to stop playing. It's, it, it's a really, even though it's a level-based sci-fi game, man, they're there's a lot of really great tools in that game that suggest that, uh, that that look like they would really support that kind of emergent play that I love so much. And um, yeah, so that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, and then the other thing is is there's a hack of uh, Traveler, Mongoose Traveler, for that's set in the Star Wars universe that I've I've had for a couple of years now, but haven't got to the table yet. And it man, like it, uh, recent experience with, uh, the traveler mechanics in October faction makes me think like, why did I not, I initially had dismissed it because I thought, well, you know, the traveler traveler doesn't, it feels very grounded when I'm playing it. And that's not really what I want from a star Wars game, but it is very easy to add in the necessary tools to make for a cinematic, uh, experience. And, and I can just do that with that. It, there's definitely enough, um, enough, a, of, a you know, a chassis for this, and it's like, I mean, when I say a hack for Star Wars, I mean like 110 pages with tons of art, and it's really a great uh, product, it's really, really cool uh, house, like homebrew kind of thing. Um, It, with some, you know, some of the cinematics uh, dialed up in the mechanics, man, like that would be a fun way of of seeing Star Wars. I, I think more so than the D20 system, more so than the D6 system, more so than the Fantasy Flight one, I think I'd enjoy running that that would really fit my sensibilities uh, quite well. Um, we'll have to see. I want to see it in play uh, first, particularly with the force powers. See how they work out. But um, I am looking forward to uh, to getting that sucker to the table sometime soon too, because I, I, I do really love the Star Wars universe. It's just the I keep wanting to find some different game to run it. I've mentioned in the past too the Star Trek the Star Trek game. I think would be phenomenal. The Star Trek Adventures game would be a phenomenal chassis on which to build a Star Wars experience. Uh, but um, this would probably do, a, after seeing the October Faction you know, game in play, which I had used Traveler as the baseline for it, that would be a lot of fun. So, anyway, that is where we are with planning for next stages. Okay, I suppose the last thing I want to talk about today is the... Um, the link of a system to story. Uh, and I, uh, there's two things that have come up recently that have got me thinking about this. Uh, one of them was the, uh, obviously the October faction, uh, game that I ran where I had, uh, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about what specifically, what, you know, experience, I guess I wanted out of the, uh, the gameplay from, um, from October faction from that session and how I had approached the, game design specifically from that, um, you know, from that perspective, which was, uh, yeah, I mean, I think definitely was beneficial, uh, in terms of the, the outcome at the table. 
and uh, I also uh, recently had um, an online buddy, um, Royster, uh, of uh, Royster's Games uh, on Twitter. He had contacted me about um, the... He was wanting to run for his uh, wife and his daughter. He wanted to run a vampire-themed, kind of like Knights Black Agents meets uh, Delta Green type game. And he was asking about how to, you know, what, what my thoughts were on, on um, how to, uh, you know, to model that experience. He mentioned that they were... You know, they're unlikely to want to have the kind of disposable agents, the ones that are basically ground down and by the uh, exposure to the unknown, the way Delta Green normally plays, and um, how to sort of change that. Uh, And also, he mentioned that they were fans of procedurals like CSI, you know, so they'd want to kind of get attached to the characters and see them investigate certain things. So what um, I had... uh, What my suggestions were, were to... Uh, modify, steal basically the uh, luck mechanic from Pulp Cthulhu so that the characters would have a better opportunity to, um, you know, to, to respond to the, or to modify the dice rolls. They're not stuck with the vagaries of the percentile dice uh, for the outcomes. I also recommended uh, having, Delta Green's got this really cool thing called Bonds, which is basically like your agent's connections with, um, you know, with, with the, the mortal or the real world, I guess, the ways they can kind of recover. It's those scenes in, in uh, you know, movies or TV where they're, it's the downtime with the loved one or with the kids or with whatever, you know, their priest, where they're talking about the impact of whatever they've been exposed to. It's a really, really, really cool mechanic. And it doesn't, I think that um, rules as written, it's really kind of a background element that happens between sessions. But I think you can really play, especially if you want a cinematic kind of, you know, police procedural kind of thing, you can definitely play that up as part of the, you know, the individual characters uh, kind of like B-plot or, you know, their side plot or whatever else or subplot. Um, So that's why I I suggested that you incorporate that a little more and then also to increase the the amount of uh, benefit that he gets from those things. So, you know, if the... um, if the players, uh, or if the, the, when the players, when his wife or his, his daughter, you know, role play with them, uh, there's normally a certain amount of sta- uh, sanity that you get back. Sanity being the, just like in Call of Cthulhu, or I think it might be called stability in Delta Green. In any event, it's either sanity or stability. You gain some of that back. Uh, so it becomes this tension of, you know, balancing your normal life to keep you grounded uh, while you're dealing with things that are making you uh, traumatized. And the way that, uh, what I suggest is just, you know, um, have the net result of multiplying the amount you get back so that they're getting more out of it. There isn't the steady attrition of sanity the way there is in a a traditional Delta Green game. What you instead get is you're gaining some uh, more back. And then also I suggested that um, instead of just telling them outright that they're going to multiply it, just let them role play the scene and then give them a, say, you know, well, this is how much you're going to get back from the rules as written, but you know what? Your role playing was so good. I'm going to multiply that by three or two or whatever. So that way it also provides a bit of a positive feedback for the players, uh, role playing, especially if they're new to, uh, to gaming in general. And, um, the last thing I suggested was, uh, there is a, a rule that is tucked away in, uh, the Delta green agents handbook where it talks about um, having characters get automatic successes. Uh, basically, like if they have a certain level and a skill, they're just going to succeed at certain tasks to get around that whole, you know, I'm a, I've gone to med school for X amount of years and how the fuck do I not know how to diagnose a common cold, you know, kind of thing. And um, 
that it's actually mentioned that the reason I actually missed that uh, or I read it and then forgot about it when I read the agent's handbook and it was in the Caligati uh, ad- adventure that I or Caligata uh, adventure that uh, I read it and it makes significant use of that stuff and that's where I was like oh shit this is a great mechanic so um with those things, that's sort of what he was uh, was going to do. That would, I think, make the characters feel a little more competent. Um, it puts, in the same way, if he's using um, uh, uh, Nice Black Agents material, Nice Black Agents and the Gumshoe system in general, it um, puts, it doesn't make finding the clues the interesting part of a mystery or an investigation. It makes interpreting the clues the important part of that. And that's really key for that system. And I, I it's something I have actually adopted for a lot of other uh, investigative games that I've I've run is the players are looking for it, they're going to find it. The thing that makes the, um, the, the those kind of things interesting is dealing with the consequences of it, not finding it. And just as an aside, it's it's weird the way that D twenty systems sort of make you they engender the kind of thinking that everything needs to be gated behind a successful dice roll. You know um, where there are because you have skills for everything, perception, you know, intuition or insight or whatever they call it in the sense motive, depending on the edition, uh, that they gate all that stuff behind a successful dice roll, but they don't really, because it's a binary success-fail, they don't really give a way of getting that story forward. Now, the way that the uh, gumshoe system presents it is that, imagine you're in a, um, you know, in a, a room, you've killed, in a dungeon, you've killed all the kobolds in that room, and you need to make a roll to see if you can go from that room to the next one, and you fail that roll, and that means you cannot proceed to that dungeon. That is a, I think, a little bit of a straw man for how people run Call of Cthulhu, but that's sort of what the, I mean, I, I take from that meaning that it, it, you know, the way that it engenders, sometimes for us to think we need to be rolling dice all the time. I think there are better ways to modify or to model the things that are on the character sheet that they're good at without necessarily resulting to a dice roll, you know, and that's one thing that Gumshoe does very well. If you have certain points in certain uh, knowledge skills, you will just gain access. Like if you got, say, two points in um, archaeology or anthropology, there's things that, like, when you're in certain scenes, you will just get that information because you have, you know... um, you've learned that uh, you've got the base level knowledge, I guess, to be able to say, oh, that's an XYZ thing, or it's from XYZ culture, you know, and then if you want to investigate more obtuse stuff in that game, that's when you can start getting, uh, spending points, you spend resources uh, from Night's Black Agents, but if transferring over to the other games, that's where just like further information can come. There's always going to be a base level of information you'll get from your training or whatever else, and and if you still want to incorporate dice rolls, because who doesn't like rolling dice? Then you just say that there are more detailed things that that may be there uh, if you uh, you know if you made your skill rolls, and I think that one thing that um, you know that if you're going to have those skill rolls uh, and you're going to make I, I'm going to kind of get lost in it in a uh, separate thought here, but but anyway, those two things what they got me thinking about is how I. Uh, you know, I don't need every game. I mean, for one thing, I do house rule a lot of games uh, that I run to make them fit the way that I want. And, and that's largely because I want the experience at the table to be what I, you know, what I'm, I'm intending to be, uh, intending the story to be, the experience to be. But it's worth thinking about why you're doing certain things. Like you may, you know, um, and I say you, uh, including myself in that, you know, that it, is this engendering the experience that I want from 
this, uh, you know, f- uh, from this particular game. You know, like in I mentioned uh, earlier in this episode how well the segmented uh, turns in uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea worked for that mass uh, combat thing that we had last weekend. And um, I, I think that, like that, certainly for that scale of encounter, that did work a lot better than, say, you know, if we had used the weapon speed rules that we use in our AD&D, that might be a little bit more clunky because there isn't the regimented, you know, now we're all doing this round, now we're all doing this round. It's, it's very much we're changing the order that everyone is acting. And... Um, yeah, so I mean, like, I, I think that there are, well, it's, it's actually something worth considering that if I have a mass combat like that, to consider doing a regimented series of, um, of turns. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, but it's worth noting, you know, that uh, to think about what, what specific experience do you want at the table? What, what is it from that scene, from that, you know, um, from that uh, adventure, from that campaign, what is it that the, you're trying to engender? What what kind of mood? What kind of um, you know? Uh, is it very game oriented? Is it very gamist? You're gonna be, want you want your players thinking a lot about the mechanics and, and the tactics and stuff. Do you want that to fade in the background? You know, do you want it to be more streamlined and more story focused? If you do, then what ways are you going to be adapting your your uh, rules for that scene? to suit that, you know, um, and I think that that's something that, uh, I, I am one who loves, I love tinkering with rules, uh, it's probably one of the reasons I, I house rule so many things, but I also like writing, uh, mini games, you know, one of the things I fell in love with, with 4th edition D&D, and I've continued on with Pathfinder 2nd, is how much, how versatile the rules are for creating fun and interesting mini games for that, and one of the things you can do with the, um, with any game you're running too, is just think about what you want that mini game to be. They don't need to be just skill challenges where it's X amount of successes before Y amount of failures. Um, you know, you can model those mini games to be whatever you want. They're in an example in um, the uh, Knights Black Agents uh, adventure that I'm mo- um, modifying for the cult, um, for my hacked version of cult, uh, that is uh, that actually has in it in that adventure. They've got a little sidebar where there's a mini game for mass combat. You know, to, to sort of roll out how the the combat's going to go between these two big groups of uh, of characters. I'm not going to say who those characters are because I don't want to spoil it for any players or any uh, uh, viewers who may want to watch that episode. But um, but it's cool. I mean, it's a cool little like, hey, here's how you model this scene, and it's something that maybe uh, it's worth bearing in mind. In every, uh, you know, in every kind of game you're running, whether it's an old school game, whether it's a more modern game, with that superstructure of rules that you can use, like the thing, the advantage to Fourth uh, Edition and uh, Pathfinder Second, which is also the, I mean, a downside to why it runs slower, is it has a robust architecture of rules underpinning the whole game. So when you're designing those mini games, you've got a pretty robust starting point. And, and in comparison, say like AD&D Second, AD&D Second has rules that are kind of all over the place. There's, you know, uh, proficiency checks are different from uh, saving throws, which are different from um, ability checks, which are different from uh, attack rolls. So, which are different from travel rules. So like it's a, it's a hodgepodge. It's part of the reason I love it because I I don't really care that there's different rules for it. A streamlined mechanic is not something that is going to make or break my uh, my game experience, um, and I kind of like you know in, in 
something I'd mentioned on an older episode. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, people have mentioned about the most recent editions of Shadowrun from 4th edition through till the current 6th edition is that by unifying the mechanic, everything feels the same. You know, when everything kind of feels like it's the same mechanic, you have the same rules for doing that, everything has a bit of a sameness quality, whereas in the older editions, you know, spellcasting was very different. It had certain elements that were the same, but spellcasting was different from hacking, which was different from, you know, uh, rigging, which was different from uh, combat, which was different from working with your contacts. And, I mean, there's... That there's obviously an argument there's a, for why that's a problem. You know, there's a lot of rules you need to learn if that's what you're intending on, uh, you know, on running. Um, but the if you don't mind learning those rules, it definitely gives each of those experiences a very different feel. You know, which is pretty pretty awesome. Uh, and that's something I like about it. You know, when we're doing it doesn't feel like we're doing the same type of roles. If nothing else, it gives each of those different types of scenes a, a very different experience. And again, like, you know, your mileage may vary as to whether you, you want that or not. But, um, you know, with that in mind, there's lots of different subsystems, even for those old school games, lots of subsystems you can choose from to model whatever it is you want to do. You know, like if you want to do a, uh, I don't know, like an overland quest kind of thing, you know, you could... Uh, choose to model that as a I don't know you can model that as a uh, uh, series of, of uh, proficiency checks a la you know the skill challenges you could choose to model that as a um, I don't know like a uh, series of, of getting lost checks you know um, I don't know I mean there's I think there's some interesting ideas you could even just streamline it down to some simplified um uh, D10 rolls because uh, D, uh, D, AD&D makes good use of the D10 quite a bit. So anyway, so I, mean, I guess my, my point being is that the the experience with designing those those two different, um, like one I actually ran, one I just helped a buddy out, has really got me thinking about how I can think more about how I can use the mechanics of the different games I'm running to specifically simulate the different scenes. Not only to um, indulge my like design aesthetic, um, but also because it helps make those different scenes feel different. You know, those uh, it makes those specific endeavors feel unique, uh, or those different scenes feel unique mechanically from the rest of the scenes. So, so yeah, I mean, that's something at least worth considering is you know how are the mechanics in your game uh, uh, helping you with the story that you're telling in the in the fiction in your game. Okay, and I think that is uh, that is that for the episode. Uh, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding the episode, please don't hesitate to shoot me a voice message on Anchor, or you can shoot me an email. My email address is uh, dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at dungeonmusings. Uh, and you can also go to the Dungeon Musings uh, YouTube channel, and you can find on any recent video a link to the Dungeon Musings Discord server if you want to join us. On there, we've got uh, ongoing conversations on all of our channels about um, all the different campaigns that we are running on the uh, YouTube channel, as well as just general uh, game-related conversations, game topic conversations, things like that. So it's a really great group of folks over on the channel there, uh, the server, I should say. Um, But other than that, um, until I talk to you again, thanks again for listening, and uh, happy gaming.